the other night, Bruni talked about mindfulness of mind, awareness of particular, in the Satipatthana Sutta, awareness of particular simple, really simple aspects of mental experience that are really useful to pay attention to. First half of that teaching talks about noticing, or not quite the first half, the first part of the teaching talks about noticing the presence and absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. Bernie talked quite beautifully about that, working with it, the value of it, Greed, aversion, and delusion, a list of three that the Buddha spoke often about, the value of understanding these states. They're described as the three unwholesome roots, the three tendencies of mind from which all unwholesome mind states arise. And in fact, he described freedom, Nibbana, in the most simplest way it's described as the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. I really like that definition. It's so simple. It also is something that I feel like we can get a taste of. Get a a sense of the direction that the mind is headed in this practice. For moments we may experience times when it feels like greed, aversion, and delusion are not arising. And the peace of that, the ease of that, the spaciousness of that, the non-problem of that is quite lovely. And the practices the Buddha taught, mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, to observe what's happening in the present moment while it's happening. As we've talked about, the simple practice of mindfulness from the perspective that Winnie so beautifully pointed us to with the Eightfold Path, wise view. Mindfulness with that perspective creates the conditions when we are observing greed, aversion, and delusion, creates the conditions for them to diminish, for them to weaken, to fall apart, for us to get that taste of the release from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so they are really worth paying attention to, getting to know, to look at, get familiar with. Now, greed and aversion are relatively easy to recognize. We know that feeling of wanting, pulling, being pulled towards something, the feeling of that just gotta have, gotta have. A feeling of aversion, that wanting to be separated from, wanting to not have that thing, that experience, that person, that idea, that thought, not wanting it. And so greed and aversion, at least in the, the meetings that I've been having with those of you I'm meeting with, pretty clear people describing pretty clear experiences of recognizing greed and aversion. Delusion, by its very nature, is much harder to see, to recognize, to experience and understand, oh, this is delusion happening in the mind. Not so hard to recognize, oh, this is greed. I know greed's happening. Delusion, not so easy. 
So tonight I'd like to explore with you some ways we can begin to recognize delusion and begin to work with it. Recognizing it is the biggest part of that. So delusion can arise following on from greed and aversion. A greed arises, we want something, we get it perhaps, we get a hit of like happiness from it. And, you know, the, the perspective that we get is, you know, okay, so having that thing made me happy, so I need to keep that thing, I need to hold on to that thing, that will be what makes me happy. And that kind of idea or belief that any, anything, having anything, is what ultimately makes us happy, is a form of delusion. So greed and aversion can create perspectives or filters in the mind, views, kind of we're seeing through the lens perhaps of aversion or greed, and then everything is colored with that. That's a form of delusion. That we think that, that our minds are kind of obscured by this filter. So that's a, it's a form of delusion, and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more as we go tonight. But delusion itself is more fundamental than greed or aversion. Ultimately, greed and aversion are based on the tendency of the mind to be, to have delusion. If the mind did not have the tendency to delusion, greed and aversion would not arise. And we'll talk about that more too. So tonight, in exploring this topic, I'd like to kind of look from maybe what we might think of as the more obvious forms of delusion through to some subtler forms and then ultimately to some very fundamental forms of delusion. Now the first level that I'd like to look at is the level basically of losing awareness, of not being mindful, disconnection. Uncertainty, confusion, often manifests as sleepiness, etc., things like that, just this disconnection from experience. The second level is delusion that is operating even when we are aware. And this is a kind of delusion that's based on views, beliefs, ideas, things that we've grown up with that are kind of perspectives that we have taken up just because we've grown up in them. We're swimming in the soup of those perspectives and we can't see that we're seeing the world from that perspective. And this is a a second layer of delusion, kind of one that's more individual. It's based on our own personal, whatever soup that we grew up swimming in. Then there's a deeper level, a a more perhaps profound level of delusion that it seems like we all share as human beings. Basic distortions of how we take, we mistake reality to be. So, and this one too operates. We can be aware and have this one happening. And so we'll go through each of these. So this first form of delusion, basically, not aware. Mindfulness is gone. We're lost in thought, perhaps believing the fantasy or construct of whatever the mind is creating.
I might have mentioned this the other night, but at one point, after a long relationship broke up, maybe even a year or so after that, every now and then my mind would get lost in the fantasy. And it, it kind of created that world of being back in that relationship. And when I came back out of that being lost in thought, it was very confusing because in that space of being lost in thought, the mind completely believed it was back in that relationship. That's delusion in that space, lost in thought, believing something that's not real. Living in an unreal world. We do this so much in our world of, of thoughts. We can also be lost in states of mind. Spaciness. I mean, there's some, there's some fundamental like states of mind that we tend to get lost in. Sleepiness, spaciness, dullness, the sloth and torpor and restlessness flavors of the hindrances. But none of those are inherently non-mindful. We just have a very strong habit of not being mindful in those states. This became very clear to me at one point. I was sitting at my table. I think I was having a meal. And uh, while I was eating... My mind kept spacing out, kind of going, losing awareness and spacing out. And practicing with this, I was, you know, just practicing with being present. It's like I, what I said to my mind was, come back and be with eating. Pay attention to eating. And seconds later, it would be spaced out again. This happened several times. Come back to eating, space out. Come back to eating, space out. At some point, I decided, or or wisdom probably kicked in, and it encouraged me to just be curious about, well, okay, so the mind is spacing out. Let's see what happens if I just try to be aware while the mind is spacing out. I kind of felt like the mind went and hovered somewhere above my head sitting up here above my head somewhere. And it was very restful. It felt very relaxed and peaceful. And what I recognized in that moment, that I was really tired. I was exhausted. And I had been kind of yanking my mind back, do this, do this. And my mind was saying, look, you're trying too hard. You know, just rest, relax. It's time to relax. We're too tired to pay attention to something in particular. And yet it was quite easeful to be aware of that state of what I had called spacing out. It was spaciousness. It was easeful. It was relaxing. It was restful. The mind hung out in that state for maybe 30 seconds. And then the state shifted. It was kind of like it was a foggy space, this foggy state. It was a diffuse, kind of fuzzy place to be. Not a lot of precision to what I was noticing. I wasn't really attending to particular senses or body sensations or smells or sights. Just this fuzziness. Oh, fuzziness feels like this. But 30, 30 seconds or so of just being with that, letting the mind rest, it was like on a sunny day where the sun just slowly dissipates the fog. And then there was quite an alertness in the mind and a, and a clarity of body sensations and smells and sights and sounds. And being aware of eating at that point was just very natural. So that state of spaciness, you know, I had kind of thought of it as, you know, well, that's not mindfulness. There's a habit of not being mindful in those states, but I would say pretty much every state of mind, except perhaps non-mindfulness, we can be mindful of. Sleepiness. Dullness. Fogginess. 
restlessness. All of them, we've talked about this possibility of waking up into them. So we we may think of these states as kind of inherently delusive states. I can't be mindful if I'm sleepy. That thought itself is delusion. If you find yourself thinking that thought, I'm too tired to meditate. I'm too X to meditate. I'm too spacey to meditate. I'm too whatever to meditate. Just don't believe that thought. It's, It's a deluded thought. It's delusion at work. We can be aware of whatever it is the mind thinks is in the way there. Be aware of tiredness, aware of sleepiness, aware of spaciness. We can also begin to get familiar with the quality or the feeling, perhaps, a little bit of the feeling of what that disconnected mind feels like. When the mind returns, when there's a kind of a waking up, mindfulness returns. When the moment that mindfulness comes back, if, you know, often in that moment, there's a kind of a... Well, it depends on on what you're doing there. I mean, often we judge ourselves in that moment. It's like, oh, I've been lost in thought, you know, should be mindful, should bring my attention here. And that actually can obscure something that's very useful to see in that moment. To have all those ideas and thoughts about what I had been doing, my mind was wandering, I should be doing this. That's a very common response. So just notice that, of course, when it happens. Judging, believing something needs to happen. But that moment, it is possible the, the more continuous, the more the mindfulness is cultivated, the more we're just okay with mindfulness coming and going and seeing that mindfulness comes and goes, the more we can be aware right as the mindfulness arises. And in that place, when mindfulness is arising into something, there's a kind of a say maybe almost a lingering taste or scent of what it was like in the moments before. So the moment of coming back into mindfulness, there's a lingering kind of feeling or sense of what that disconnected, non-mindful state felt like. So we can begin to get a taste of that sometimes, in that space. Sometimes we're waking up into something stronger, like anger or aversion, and then we actually get a taste of that state, a really clear sense of that. Or we might wake up into thinking and get a really clear sense of, oh, this is what it's like to be aware of thinking. But sometimes if we're returning from one of those just vague, diffuse, disconnected, fuzzy states... The return of mindfulness is kind of like waking up into that state and you get a sense of this is what it's like to be mindful of this and there's a little bit of a recollection or an awareness and it was it just felt like I wasn't here, like the mind wasn't here. And we can get a taste of that, a flavor of that. So we can begin to get familiar with that kind of feeling of having a veil or a haze or something in front of our minds as it's exploring, connecting with experience. So that's the kind of delusion that's related to just mindfulness being lost and ways to explore a little bit there, particularly that moment of waking up. This is what it feels like to be aware right now. And a moment before, there was a flavor or feeling of what it was like to not be aware.
second kind of delusion to I'd like to talk about this evening is delusion that's connected to our personal conditioning, that soup we've been raised in. Some of these have to do with our own, you know, things that we experienced personally, like, you know, how other kids treated you on the playground or, you know, just ways that there was engagement with you in your life. Some of them have to do with familial patterns and habits. We all have our own kind of conditioning from our families. Some of my friends and I sometimes talk about differences here. I, in my family, teasing was not a loving thing. And one of my close friends, teasing in, in my friend's family, was a very loving thing. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect between us sometimes around teasing. This is just our own, you know, our own conditioning. So this kind of conditioning can come in the family, it can come based on our own experience, and it can also come based on cultural conditioning, you know, our cultures. There's so much of this uh, kind of conditioning that we just are not aware of how we've been conditioned, how we've been shaped. The practice really helps us to uncover this, these patterns, these habits that we have, and that they have been conditioned. But not seeing them, they're basically operating underground, These habits, these patterns, these conditions are operating underground. And we often just take them to be the baseline of our, of reality. We don't see that they're a perspective on reality. We take them to be reality. We think we're perceiving things accurately. But we're seeing them from a particular lens, from a particular view it can be hard to see that we're having this kind of perspective and very hard at times to even to see evidence to the contrary or evidence that it is a perspective. This is well documented in the psychological world in a field that studies confirmation bias. We tend to, in these studies over and over again, it shows that we tend to take in information that agrees with what we believe and we tend to actively ignore or just not even recognize information that does not agree with what we believe. We, we can actively discount information that disagrees with what we believe. In fact, there's some studies that show um, in you know, looking at some um, of the, the divisions that are so apparent in, in our country, in this country, in the United States right now, particularly around politics, that if you um, give people um, you know, evidence to support the other side's perspective in a reasoned kind of rational uh, approach using just evidence and facts, people tend to get more entrenched in their views. So very difficult to kind of shake ourselves out of these perspectives. This is how delusion works so much. So I want to give some examples of this kind of delusion. There's a lot of them. I'm just going to give a selected kind of set. One kind of set of views that we hold are views about ourselves and others. We have beliefs about who we are, what we're capable of. We have beliefs about other people. This one is really kind of easy to start to see here. 
many of you, most of you, I'd say probably all of you, that most of the people here you do not know. You don't know much about them. You don't know, like, what they think or... But that doesn't stop us from having all kinds of views and opinions about them. On that first day of the retreat, we talked about Vipassana romance and Vipassana vendetta. And this is really, you know, these things tend to spring out of this kind of delusion, views, opinions about someone. just based on, you know, very little information. We think we know who someone is, what they are, how they are, what they're capable of. And so we can begin to recognize that our thoughts, our ideas here, especially because we don't know people. This is harder to see when we really know people well. You know, we, we put people, they do something repeatedly or even just once or twice and we think, well, that's, how, that's who they are. We recognize when, we can recognize when we're doing this for other people, especially when we don't know them. We can recognize when other people are doing it for us, to us. But it's so hard to recognize when we do this to ourselves. We have ideas, views, opinions about ourselves that are just deeply embedded. Many of our challenges in life stem from some kind of belief. Some kind of belief we have about ourselves, our capabilities. My own uh, pattern of self-hatred. You know, it, a pattern I worked with for many years. Deeply conditioned beliefs of I'm a failure, I'm no good, I can't do things right. It shocked me, actually shocked me when I began to see that this was a pattern in my life because until I came to meditation and started looking at my mind, I thought I was very competent I would not have said self-hatred was part of my equation. But then I started looking at what my mind was telling myself in the practice. It was very challenging. It was a kind of a perspective that was operating under the surface, this perspective of, you're no good, you can't do things right, was like propelling me to try to prove myself wrong to do everything competently and well and right and prove that, you know, all those imagined people in my mind who thought I couldn't do things, that they were wrong. But all of that activity of, you know, accomplishment was really rooted in this belief, this delusion that I was a failure somehow. So it's hard to see sometimes what are the beliefs that are operating in our own minds. I mentioned this exploration around thoughts to check in. You know, if there's a struggle happening, if there's a lot of thoughts going on, you could check in what's being believed. This can be a useful exploration at times if there's just even something that seems like really confusing or like the mind is just spinning and whirling and like, what's going on? I have no idea what's, well, what's being believed? I think I should know what's going on. Maybe it's that simple. So that question, what's being believed, can be very powerful to kind of support a uh, seeing through delusion that's operating. So views and beliefs about ourselves, one form. cultural views, perspectives of our culture, how those get come in. You know, these are these are things that are often not spoken. They are 
perspectives that simply, um, it's like we are so deeply swimming in the soup of our culture that we just take, take things in. Simple, simple ways, for instance, like how close you stand to a stranger when, you, when you're talking to them. Whether or not you make physical contact with someone when you're talking to them. How close do you need to be to make physical contact with somebody? These are things nobody sits down and tells you, this is how you do this. These are things we absorb. So this is a lot of how these cultural perspectives come in. It's just through living, swimming in the soup of our, of our culture. And sometimes we can notice the... Um, that these perspectives are operating when we, um, we find somebody behaving differently than the norm. So we might feel really uncomfortable if somebody comes up and stands right next to us while we're talking to them. It's like, that's not right. That's not how we do this here. It's just, it's just a perspective. It's just a... A convention, really. It's just a convention. And so we can start to see some of these perspectives, these cultural perspectives, conventions. Travel's a great way to see this. You know, if you go to another, go spend some time in another culture, you'll get a taste of what your perspective is. Some of these simple, almost neutral perspectives, really. I mean, Standing three feet or five feet away from somebody, you know, this is, these are things we can, we can begin to just see as almost neutral conditionings, just what we've grown up with. And then there's some other conditionings in culture that are way more insidious and way more harmful. The one in, in the uh, culture in the U.S., for instance, and I don't know that I really, I mean, I, I think I did hear this at times, but, you know, just America's the land of opportunity. If you work hard enough, you can live your dream. That's a view that's embedded in American United States, the culture in the United States. Sometimes these perspectives come because we're, we're, we're immersed in it. We're immersed in it. We're told it repeatedly. This, this particular um, view of the United States being a land of opportunity and that anyone who works hard enough can fulfill their dream ignores, is not really taking in the inherent advantages of being born in a certain, with a certain gender, a certain skin color, with parents who have a certain economic status. There's a kind of a privilege that some people have that others don't have, and that there's not an equal footing, really, of opportunity for everyone. So not recognizing that this is a view, a perspective, not seeing how some advantages are conveyed on some and not others can lead to a kind of a a denial around this privilege of being in a white body, those in in a socioeconomic status that has more resources at their disposal. And there's that saying some of you may recognize that some of us are born on third base and think we're hitting a home run. So 
So just that, you know, this, this perspective or this view that there's this equal opportunity without seeing. The delusion here is not seeing the varieties of experience that come in and that opportunities are not all equal. This kind of thing creates so much suffering. So delusion is not a, you know, a small thing. When we're acting from a delusion, from delusion, it can have major ramifications. Now, the standing, you know, two feet, five feet, maybe not major ramifications. But there's many perspectives that we do not see, these views that we grow up in that are so damaging. And if we are here to see suffering and find ways to let go of it, this is an area that we need to look at. How is our delusion working? Another example, a kind of perspective that creates um, a lot of suffering is sometimes views can be created you know, not from just swimming in the soup, but from our own personal experience, but maybe not through getting complete information. So one one uh, teaching story at the time of the Buddha, many of you may be familiar with this teaching story, is the story of the blind people and the elephant. And in this teaching story, the Buddha uh, tells of a king who asked... Um, the the, peop- the blind people in the kingdom to be shown an elephant, and so the some of the people were touching the elephant in various parts of the elephant, some touching the, the trunk, some touching the feet, the legs, some the side of the elephant, some the tail, some the ears, and then when they were asked what is an elephant like, some said well. An elephant is like a post. And some said, well, an elephant is like a broom, those who touch the tail, the tuft of the tail. Some like a wall of a storeroom, those who touch the side. Now, none of that was... I mean, that, that experience itself was not delusion. That's what they experienced. But what happens with that is that we tend to, getting information... We get partial information about something, and then we create a view. This is what this thing is. And this teaching story says that the the people um, were comparing their views. Well, an elephant's like this. Well, that's not right. An elephant is like this. No, you're wrong. An elephant is like this. And it's the holding to the view, holding to the perspective, not admitting that there may be a different perspective or a broader perspective that it can encompass all of them. That's where the delusion is. That's the delusion. Believing the perspective. Even, again, here, this is the confirmation bias kind of thing. You know, somebody says, well, to me it felt like a wall of a storeroom. Well, that can't be right, because it sure felt like a post to me. So the the belief in our own, and, and I think this is even more insidious when we have had direct experience. You know, we had direct experience of something. And then we create a view. This is what is the experience is like. In one teaching, a deep teaching on views, it's in the first sutta in the Diginikaya, called the all-embracing net of views, the Buddha describes a whole bunch of different views and perspectives that people hold to. These are speculative views about the nature of reality and... Um, 
he said, you know, he, he described how many of these views come to be, different perspectives, and points out that, you know, some people say well, the world is infinite. Others say the world is finite. The world is... Um, There were ten. I can't remember them. Anyway, it's not real, it's not important. I give you all ten. So just they, they were saying all these different perspectives of what the world was like. And then the Buddha said, you know, here's how these views get formed. He said, what happens is they go into meditation and they have an experience of the world being infinite. And they come out of that meditation and they, they say, I've touched reality. This is it. The world is infinite. Somebody else goes into meditation and sees this really infinite, vast space and then bumps up against something that feels finite on the outside of that and says, oh, that's wrong. It's actually finite. And the Buddha actually cautioned us in that particular sutta about views that arise based on deep meditation experience. He said, those are some of the most sticky views that we have. So based on direct experience, we can really cling. This happens in daily life where we have direct experience and it happens in spades in meditation practice. We think we found it. And then we try to recreate it. And we suffer. And we argue with people. (laughs) We argue with people about it. That was the whole point with the... um, uh, in the sutta on the Dighanikaya, how much people argued about these different perspectives. They would just contradict each other and, you're wrong, this is not, I felt found this from my direct experience. Well, you're wrong, I found this from my direct experience. Where does that go? So the Buddha encouraged us not to cling, not to cling to views at all. Now, views can be useful. Right view, for instance, is a useful view. And it can be potentially helpful to the simile of the raft, where we float across a flood using a raft, using the effort of our hands and feet to get across a flood. And in that example, the Eightfold Path is, is kind of equated with the, with the raft. And the Buddha, you know, talks about putting the raft down when you get on the other side of the flood, that it's not so useful to you there. So not to cling to it. Once you cross the flood... While you're in the middle of the flood, you have to hold on to the raft. But understanding this is skillful means, this is useful now. This is not somehow inherently, in in the simile of the raft, the Buddha said that once you've crossed the flood, is it useful to pick up that raft and carry it around with you on your head? No, it's not. And so that's, again, put, the, put it down. Put it down. And so he's really encouraging us to not cling to views. We can use views in our practice. And we do use views in our practice. We can use views in our lives. They're helpful in our lives. Now there's a bunch of other views, uh, examples of this kind of delusion, but I want to move on to the more, most insidious form of delusion. I sometimes just call this human delusion. This is delusions we all share. These are views that cloud our perception of experience at a very fundamental level. distortions of reality. And there's three basic distortions. These will be familiar to you. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. 
we tend to take what is unreliable as a source of lasting happiness to be reliable as a source of lasting happiness. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. So again, this kind of delusion operates, functions, even when we are aware. My teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, says, delusion does not mask the object. It doesn't mask the experience. It masks the nature of the experience. So we may be aware of an experience and not be aware of its impermanent nature. So this is the direction the Vipassana practice moves is to help us to begin to see through these fundamental distortions. The ways our mind... And this this seems to happen actually... um, often based on, you know, just the way our bodies and minds work. These delusions, these mistaken perceptions, that the mistakes around these three areas happen because of the way our bodies and minds are put together. So taking what is impermanent to be permanent, for instance. Some of this happens because we tend to relate to experience through ideas about experience rather than the direct meeting of what's actually happening. So concept can mask change. Maybe we can you know, see this in terms of um, you know, what we hold on to at a, at a kind of a level, a more ordinary level, we have an idea or a view about who someone is. And we hold on to that. It's like that, that just keeps, that, we, we, that stays with us. And we don't tend to see when they change. So we have an idea about them. And that concept masks that they can change. So this, this happens also at, at other levels. So a, an example from my, my own practice. I, I was practicing in Shui Umin in Burma with Saida Utejaniya. And um, most days in the evening, roughly, you know, in the evening um, as it was getting a little bit dark, um, I was practicing in my room, I was meditating in my room, and I often heard this squealing sound at night. The squealing sound sounded like a pig to me. So I was noticing the squealing and seeing an image of a pig in my mind. So this was a concept. And um, also I thought, you know, the sound of the squealing was it sounded distressed to me. And so, pig, distressed, my mind leapt to, created this idea that on the other side of the wall of the monastery was the local butcher. And that what I was hearing every evening in this squealing was the pigs being slaughtered for the market for the next day. So there was a lot of compassion a lot of like, um, you know, sadness. And now I knew that the I knew that the idea about the pigs being slaughtered was a story. I did not. I knew that I did not know that's what was happening. But I was not prepared for what I discovered one night when I was taking a walk instead of doing my meditation in my room at that time. I was walking up and down in the middle of the monastery and there were all these bats flying around and they were squealing. The whole idea of, you know, not only the story about the slaughterhouse on the other side, but that it was even a pig. I mean, 
like there was no need for compassion anymore. I knew that the, it was a, that the idea about the slaughterhouse was a story. I did not have a clue that the idea that it was a pig was a story. That one, I believed. Until, fortunately, evidence to the contrary, and I believed that, <laughs> you know, seeing the bats and hearing them squeal, I actually believed that that was ha- what was happening. So these, the way, this is the way concept, concept, when we glom onto concept, it obscures what's actually happening. And that can often obscure the changing nature of experience. Concepts are useful, and it's useful to recognize them as concepts. So we're not going to live our lives. We're not going to be able to walk around and navigate even walking through this room without concepts. If everything were just form and color, (laughs) we're not going to do a very good job of walking through the room. So concepts help us to navigate the world, but we need to recognize them for what they are. Concepts also come with baggage. Concepts often come with ideas, views, opinions. So recognizing concept as concept. So concepts can mask change. Another thing that can mask change is just simply change happens so fast. Our system kind of um, creates a continuity, puts things together so that it feels more stable and solid. I think there's a frequent Saito Upandita used to talk about the fire stick. If you have a stick with a fire burning on the end of it and you whirl it in the air, you'll see a circle. It looks like that circle exists, but it is, is, it's an illusion. It's an image that's created because our vision has a persistence. It holds on. And that persistence through our sense bases is one of the reasons that it's hard to see impermanence. So the rapidity of change, that fast-moving fire stick, is a kind of an example of a rapidity of change that creates the illusion of stability of some kind. But this is happening all the time, this kind of belief instability belief in solidity. I mean, we actually know through particle physics that there's way more empty space than there is solidity. It's really about how fast things are moving that things feel solid. And in our minds, when we look at our minds, we can start to see the, uh, the rapidity with which things happen the conditioned nature of what's arising and how our minds put things together and then put a concept on top of it. So the rapidity of change can mask change. Concepts can mask change. As we begin to meet experience directly, I heard that Annie talked about the Bahia Sutta, Sutta of just in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard. The sensed is only the sensed. That meeting of experience begins to take us below the level of concept and to more meeting the direct changing nature of experience. And this is a main encouragement in our mindfulness practice to begin to be curious about the impermanent nature of experience. We can begin to become aware of this by looking deeply at what seems to be solid. Look at what seems to be stable, what seems to be permanent. You'll find that it's not. It may not show itself as impermanent quickly, but it will reveal itself to be impermanent. We also take what is unreliable 
to be reliable as a source of happiness. We take sense pleasure. Our, our minds basically work this way. You know, sense pleasure, we get something we like, it feels good. Not only does it feel good to get the thing that we want, it feels good to have the wanting go away. So there's this double hit of like happiness in the split second moment that we get something. And our minds don't quite understand that this is just a fleeting moment of happiness. We glom onto it, we create the idea, a concept arises around it, we believe that this is, you know, this is where I get my happiness. And maybe it stays for a little while, maybe. But mostly what happens is that we are holding on to an idea, and it's the idea that is giving us that happiness, because reality does not hang around for very long. So sense pleasure, we believe in some way, sense pleasure is as good as it gets. But sense pleasure is so unreliable. It is so fleeting. Getting what we want, we get a moment of that. Further conditions the idea that getting what I want is where I'll be happy. Our minds are really short-sighted, basically. We're designed to go for the, sh- the qu- quickest hit of pleasure. And then when that fades, when was the last time I was happy? Well, when I got something that I wanted. So let me find something else that I want, and then I'll get that, and then I'll be happy again. And we're essentially in this cycle. So this is greed at work. Then I talked about greed uh, at the beginning. You know, it's that leaning towards that wanting. That wanting itself is the greed. That leaning towards is the greed. The delusion embedded in greed is that having the thing will make me happy. That's pure delusion. The belief that there is some reliable happiness to be had by getting that sense pleasure. Likewise with aversion. Very similar. We want to get rid of something that's unpleasant, that we don't like. The idea that separating myself from something that's unpleasant will make me happy is the delusion that underlies aversion. The aversion itself is that wanting to separate, that pulling away. The delusion is the belief that that's its foundation. This is just useful information to know. <laughs> really useful to know. It's hard to take in. And yet we can start to see these patterns at work and see the unreliability of sense pleasure. The Buddha gave us a a simple teaching on this. He said, yes, getting what you want feels good. That's the gratification of sense pleasure. But notice how long it lasts. That simple teaching, noticing the impermanence of sense pleasure, begins to point to that underlying delusion that having the thing will make me happy is not a reliable way to move towards happiness. So becoming aware of where am I looking for happiness? Do I think that having that third dessert will make me happy? It's amazing to me sometimes when I look at this, really look in the moment, I mean, I know, I know in my intellect that having chocolate is not going to make me ultimately happy. But in the moment of eating that chocolate, oh, does the mind believe it. (laughs) Look at it. It's 
stunning how deluded our minds are, even when we know intellectually. So the third form of seeing what is not self as self, I don't have time for this evening, but I'm quite sure we will cover it in more detail, probably in a whole talk. So I'll just end by pointing to uh, we begin to understand delusion by looking at these ways that the mind does these things. So we, 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 we begin to move in the direction of non-delusion by understanding the delusion. So these various things I've pointed to, to, to look at the views. What views are you holding? What beliefs are happening? What feels like it's permanent right now? How is a sense of self showing up? Get familiar with these perspectives that the Buddha pointed to as places of delusion. Start being curious. Non-delusion is not something we can do. It's something, it's an insight. When we understand, when we understand oh, the mind was clinging to that because it thought it was happiness. And it lets go. Insight is not something we can make happen, but we can incline our minds in the direction of curiosity for seeing delusion. And another important piece is that And some of you have talked about this too, you know, sometimes we see through delusion, that experience of like something falling away, a veil falling away, and it's like, oh, it's so clear. I understand that clinging is suffering, and why would I ever cling again? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And it just seems so clear. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, it's not so clear. We're clinging again. And it's like, wait, what? Didn't I know this? When that happens, don't second guess that understanding. It's not as obvious as it looks when the insight is happening. If it were, we would just live there. We would understand that. We would be living in that. We have to meet these truths over and over again. It's a slow process of unwinding. And yet one of the beauties of that is if you can trust those insights, trust that that understanding of, yeah, clinging is not helpful. Clinging to something that's impermanent is not helpful. When we see that and feel that directly and know that as a direct experience, then when we are clinging to something, we can know. This is the deluded mind working. We can directly recognize. We've known the clarity. We can see, yep, this is, this is, the confu- this is confusing. The mind is just confused right now. And we don't have to beat ourselves up for it. But just recognize, okay, yep, delusion's here. And I know delusion is here. I'm aware that delusion is working. Let's just sit for a moment. I'll leave you with a quote from Nisargadatta. Do not try to understand. It's enough if you do not misunderstand.
So we have time for walking. And you're invited back for the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.